functioned. So while I was a pastor in New Jersey, I did my best to learn about different faith traditions around me. I visited a new Hindu temple in New Jersey, my town, Bridgewater, years ago. And it was so curious to me. I couldn't believe what I saw and heard in that crowded inner sanctuary. It was an open house day where the whole public was invited to see and experience Hindu worship. My guide was very kind and he explained patiently that what I was seeing was worshipers bringing gifts of food to the idols. And that was the thing that got me. Yes, he called them idols. And every, by that time, Presbyterian bone in my body shivered. Like, oh no, idol worship. They were bringing gifts of milk and fruit, things like lemons, and leaving little quarts of milk at the base of the idols. These idols that were clearly plaster and painted in bright colors. I had a hard time wrapping my head around this. I could not figure out what the point was because no amount of waiting was ever going to see those idols kind of bending over to, to grab that quart of milk and chug it down, right? You know, that's, that's what the cynical part of me was thinking. And, and I got to say, I, I do believe that for Christians as a whole, worshiping idols makes no sense whatsoever. Am I right? Right. I mean, we, we would say that. That's a baseline of our faith. So why do we worship idols? Because I think we do. I think we all have a little idolatry in our hearts. Acts chapter 14, beginning with verse 8. Listen for the word of the Lord to you today. In Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet and had never walked, for he had been crippled from birth. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul, looking at him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, <coughs> said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And the man sprang up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in Lycanian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates. He and the crowds wanted to offer sacrifice. Oh my goodness, how strange. The locals, Jewish people would have called them Gentiles. We would call them ancient pagans, um, worshipers of the uh, Roman pantheon. These Gentiles mistake two ordinary looking people, Paul and Barnabas, for the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes. How could they be so naive to believe that a God would come to earth in human form? Oh my goodness. We can't throw stones, can we? 
Because that's exactly what we believe. And why did they think that the gods had become human? Well, when they saw miracles or blessings of any kind in their world, they assumed that the gods they worshipped, Zeus and Hermes among them, were behind it, responding to their worship, their sacrifices, their gifts. Think again, the milk and the lemon. Since Paul and Barnabas performed the miracles, the locals figured that they must be in human form, the gods that they had been praying to. Again, this kind of thinking isn't as strange as it sounds because what made the first followers of Jesus recognize that he was special, that he was God come to earth. It was miracles, including miracles of healing. When the Jewish people in Israel saw Jesus healing their friends and neighbors, they knew that God had come to earth in this man. Now, the Gentiles of Lystra thought that Paul and Barnabas were Zeus and Hermes. Now, I want you to think back to Percy Jackson or Homer or however you learned anything about the Greek gods. Think of what you know about Zeus. What do you know about Hermes? Just maybe you learned them as Jupiter and Mercury. Okay, same, same gods. Those are Roman names versus the Greek names. Doesn't matter. Zeus is the king of the gods, the ultimate source of power and prosperity, the keeper of justice and order. And who is Hermes? He's the messenger of the gods, Zeus's spokesperson. He is also Zeus's son. Who could believe that the source of all power and prosperity, the high king of heaven would have a son and that that son would come to earth and speak to humanity on his heavenly father's behalf? Can you imagine such a thing? Maybe people would even say about that son that he is the incarnate image of the father, the living word of the father. Of course, that's exactly how we talk about Jesus, isn't it? The spokesperson, the word, the logos of the Father. Well, that's how the people of Lystra saw Zeus and Hermes, and that's how they saw Barnabas and Paul that day. So no wonder they tried to worship the apostles. A priest of Zeus was ready to sacrifice a team of oxen on the spot. No hesitation. And think about that. If you thought the source of all power and blessing was standing in front of you, the one to whom you'd prayed your whole life, well, wouldn't you give everything you could? But we don't worship idols, you say. Really? Our idols aren't Zeus and Hermes but we sure sacrifice a lot to our own versions. There's the God of wealth and security. Let's call him fidelity. How many people do you know who've sacrificed their marriages, their relationships with their kids in years of their life for a nicer car, a second home, or a fatter 401k? 
I think the boomer generation has a lot in common with ancient idol worshipers. In the end, as they experience retirement or at least approach it, they're wondering if it was all worth it. You know who doesn't seem to worship this particular idol? Younger people. Gen Z, millennials, and younger. I hear a lot of boomers criticizing the work ethic of young people. But did we ever consider that maybe it's because younger people aren't willing to sacrifice to the same worthless idols that many of us did? Now, young people aren't perfect, of course. Those generations have their own God. Let's call her Sephora. She is the God of eternal youth, relevance, and riz. Think of how much time and effort people spend on looking young, dressing young, and sounding young. There's nothing quite so sad as a nearly 60-year-old man trying to act like he's cool and down with the cats and kittens. Unless it's a 30-year-old anxious about laugh lines and a few stray grays. Come on, admit it. People of all ages sacrifice their dollars and dignity. Oh my gosh. I get my hair cut at a salon. On most occasions, I am the only male there. But sometimes I have company. And I'm thinking the amount of tinfoil I see in women's hair as it's getting colored, could it's like a satellite dish. You can just pick up anything. But, but no, your secret's safe with me. No names are going to be revealed because what happens at the salon stays at the salon. We get it. But just think of the dignity we sacrifice to look the way we do on Sunday morning. We go through all kinds of treatments and tucks and plucks and more in the hopes that Sephora will keep us young forever. But the most dangerous idol of all right now, I think, and this is a worldwide challenge, is the one that I'm calling victory, the God of power. Everywhere we look from Capitol buildings to classrooms to border wars, we see people willing to do anything, give anything, sometimes millions of dollars, sacrifice everything for more power. And often it's really about power over the ability to control others. It's not enough to be strong these days. We must win. Victory, total victory is everything. Because of this, leaders sacrifice innocent lives and truth and decency itself to win, to be able to claim absolute victory. And often... Citizens reward these winners with even more power, even power over us. Now, fidelity and Sephora and victory aren't real gods, of course. 
But again, that doesn't keep millions of people, billions even, from worshiping them every day. And many of them are called Christians. Now, Barnabas and Paul were appalled when the locals mistook them for Zeus and Hermes. Verse 14, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We are mortals just like you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to follow their own ways. Yet he has not left himself without a witness in doing good, giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. Paul is just beside himself and he's doing everything he can in that moment to explain that despite any weird service similarities between pagan gods and God the Father and God the Son, the one he's proclaiming, despite any appearance of similarities, there's absolutely no parallel. Paul knew what the locals were saying. He grew up surrounded by pagan temples and religion. He knew that the locals called Zeus king of the gods, but they really saw him as something of what we'd call in politics today a strong man. Zeus and modern strongmen stay in power, and Zeus stayed in power through threats and force. The ancient Greeks believed that Zeus kept law and order, but he wasn't subject to law and order himself. They believed Zeus kept his favorite citizens fat and happy and made his enemies pay dearly for their disloyalty. He faced all kinds of temptations and gave in to most of them. He had multiple wives and consorts, tons of children, many of whom wanted to overthrow him. But as long as Zeus, they thought, enforced human morality, the people didn't care about his personal failings. So in that culture, Zeus was taken seriously, but he was feared more than respected, obeyed more than loved, talked about more than talked to. Greeks didn't expect or desire a personal relationship with Zeus any more than World War II Germans wanted a personal relationship with Hitler. Zeus is not anything like our King of Kings and Lord of Lords, is he? That's what Paul was reacting to. Our Father God is all-powerful, yes, and all-loving. Our God bestows blessing on all of his children of every faith and nation, not because they all please him, but because it pleases him to bless his children. And that's what loving dads do. And how do we worship our heavenly king? Not by butchering animals or leaving behind milk and fruit, but by offering our lives like our God did for us. In that culture, the people sacrificed animals to 
idols to their gods as a way of saying thank you to their gods. Or more often, I'm paying you with these gifts in advance for what you're about to do for me. When you approached a priest of Zeus or Athena or the god of healing, Asclepius, the priest's most important question was, what did you bring for your offering? Which reminds me, when I help people um, as they're in the emergency room at the hospital and they're checking in and so often it seems that the most important question people are asked at the hospital is, what insurance do you have? I can't impress upon us enough that our God is so different from the God that those Gentiles saw. We take it for granted. Our God doesn't require animal blood or our blood. Our God says, I love you so much that I will shed my blood for you. I will sacrifice my life for you. Soon we'll all partake at this table and remember how great was our God's sacrifice for us. Zeus never once sacrificed a thing for his people. Who we worship and what we worship matters. Worshiping wealth and power and victory leads to disappointment and death. Worshiping the one true God leads to eternal life. Paul spelled this out in his own way as clearly as he could, but it did not work. Verse 18, even with these words, Paul and Barnabas scarcely restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. So we have more in common, I think, with the ancient polytheists than we want to admit. It's uncomfortable and awkward for us to realize how like them we are. But this table reminds us of what's real, what lasts, what is truly worth the gift of our lives. Not money, but relationships. Not youth, but eternity. And not victory, but love. Not Zeus and Hermes, but our heavenly father and his one and only son, Jesus. Amen. Now would you please stand that we can confess our faith in the one true God together in the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, 
light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again with his glory.